This is Unfilter, episode 315, for June 20th, 2020. President Trump, by dint of what we saw in the impeachment, uh, by what others are being quoted as saying in terms of uh, leaders uh, in the president's own administration, President Trump is clearly ethically unfit and intellectually unprepared to be the president of the United States. That doesn't seem to matter to the Republicans in the United States Senate. Hello, friends, and welcome to 315 of your Turkey Popping Podcast. My name is Chris, and this was a very hard episode for me to start. In fact, I'd actually started a couple other versions of this and just stopped midway through. There's so much to talk about, and there's so much that is so deeply disappointing and frustrating, and I I didn't even know where to scratch the surface. And then once I did each time, I didn't like where it went, so hopefully the third time's a charm. I am in Austin, Texas, as I record this experiencing my first rainstorm in Austin, Texas, shortly after driving into a wild turkey at 60 miles per hour going down the highway. Thankfully, no damage to the RV. However, there is a dead turkey on the side of the road. So if you see a dead turkey just outside of Lubbock, uh, that one's on me. You can have that from me. Little little roadkill dinner. This is um, This is crazy what's going on right now as I record this. June 20th of 2020, turns out it's a broken year completely. Um, Everything about the news cycle right now goes against the grain of my approach to information intake. My approach, which I should probably just briefly recap, is it's like the scientific method to information collection. Careful observation. You apply rigorous skepticism about what you have just observed Then you try to take your given cognitive assumptions, your biases, understand how they could possibly distort how one interprets that observation. So then you formulate a hypothesis. You continue to collect observations. You have induction based on those observations, which gives you deductions you can draw into hypothesis, refine those, and then eventually work to some kind of empirical findings. And you just keep working the process over and over again. You take in more information, you rework, and that's not how things are reported anymore. That's not how things are done anymore. Everything is tribal. Everything is tribal now. And most of all, it's all Trump's fault. Well, except for maybe maybe our first story. Let's start with something coming out of Australia right now who appears to be targeted by a sophisticated cyber attack. I'm sure this will be Donald Trump's fault, too. The first cases of coronavirus were recorded here in the Chinese city of Wuhan. But the origin of the pandemic is a sensitive topic for China. Australia sparked anger earlier this year merely by calling for an inquiry. It's part of a trend of growing hostility between Beijing and Western allies. And now this. Australian organisations are currently being targeted by a sophisticated state-based cyber actor. This activity is targeting Australian organisations across a range of sectors, including all levels of government, industry, 
political organisations, education, health, essential service providers and operators of other critical infrastructure. Now, this sounds very serious. I'm going to play a little bit more here in a moment. The assumption is being made, although it's not being directly said, that it's China. The Prime Minister was careful to avoid public attribution, but his officials point privately to China. Not true, says Beijing. China is a staunch upholder of cyberspace security, and we have been a victim of cyber attacks. We have been firmly opposing all forms of cyber attacks. Our position has been clear and consistent. One of the things that I find troubling about this is we haven't really come to a universally agreed upon way to attribute cyber attacks. And cyber attacks are the type of attack that is very easy to falsify. So we, in fact, during the Snowden leaks or maybe it was shortly after that, I can't remember the exact timing. Maybe you do. And let me know if you do. Uh, There was documentation that came out on how the U.S. intelligence agencies can mask their identities to look like foreign governments. But Australia isn't alone with its suspicions. The UK last month said laboratories working on coronavirus vaccines were at threat in cyberspace. China-backed hackers allegedly among the suspects. Australia's High Commissioner told me this week allies need to stick together. Like-minded nations, uh, people who see the world through similar eyes with similar values like commitment to democracy and liberal societies and, 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 and freedom, increasingly need to cooperate against potential adversaries. Do what a convenient message. What a, what a perfect right-on message uh, thing to say, isn't it? You see, uh, we don't know for sure it's China, but we'll imply it is. If you listen to what the government officials say, they never actually say it's China. Probably is. Maybe it's the U.S. If you do a little digging, you'll see that there is some interesting relationships developing between China and Australia. During the corona stuff, it looked like they were very publicly going at each other. In fact, I was giving Australia credit for being willing to say some of the things that it seems some of the other Western nations were a little too afraid to say. But when you dig into it and you you follow the money, you'll see that there's actually quite a bit of deals getting set up in Australia and um, from China. And I'm skeptical that China's going to screw up a good thing like that. That's that's more our job over here. So let's go back to these. Let's go back to the states and talk about some of the things that really got me fired up. One of the most fascinating aspects of the Trump administration. Well, that's a big statement, but one of the things that seems to be a reoccurring theme that I have personally found fascinating is these hire and fired people. Trump hires these crazy individuals to come work in his cabinet, um, people who are clearly bad choices from the moment they're announced, like John Bolton. They come into his White House. They tend to be extremely hawkish. And then they burn out, get fired, and then and then have a public feud with the president on the sort of more minor scale. And then on the more and more common scale is they release these quote-unquote tell-all books. Excuse me as I <laughs> gestured here in the RV. They make these tell-all books that the mainstream media goes nuts over. Picture this during the Obama administration. This didn't happen. But during the Trump administration, not only is the mainstream media thrilled to put forward individuals like John Bolton who are disgusting, grotesque, 
warmongers, they don't care anymore. As long as he has something negative to say about Trump, they'll prop him up. Even if he is a horrible individual, even if he looks like a comical parody of a hawk, if you were going to make a cartoon character who was the big baddie that was secretly whispering war ideas into the president's ear, you would literally draw John Bolton. He is on, I have played, you mean on older, older versions of this show, I have played wild, ludicrous, ridiculous statements by this unhinged, dangerous individual, John Bolton. And our president picked this dumbass, uh, dumbass, I was going to say something worse. And our president picked this dumbass. Then he burns out, he writes the book, and now, now he's a hero to the media. And of course, the Trump administration has this huge issue with this book. And I, I'm trying to remember the, na- the name of, um, in the room where it happened. There it is. So if you haven't, if you haven't seen it yet, you can go look at it. Um, I may still get it want to make that disclaimer so far i've gotten all these books so i may still get this one uh, but the story around this is fascinating to watch john bolton become the hero of the media john bolton's new tell-all book from his days as donald trump's national security advisor has leaked and it is a doozy bolton describes the trump administration as following a pattern of quote obstruction of justice as a way of life He says there's a ton of stuff that the impeachment inquiry missed and that Trump tried to get China to help him get reelected this fall. We know this all and more because a handful of reporters have managed to get hold of a copy of Bolton's book ahead of its publication and admit a desperate attempt by President Trump to stop the publication of that book, including a brand new effort tonight, just within the last hour. The Justice Department filed an emergency application for a restraining order against Bolton and is asking a judge to block him from publishing his book next week. Yeah, fun little thing there. The judge has released his initial statement. Obviously, that's still going to you know, have to take more time. But uh, the judge said, no one wins here. No one's going to win in this. Are you sure you want to do this? First of all, the Trump administration blew how they'd made their filing, which is incredible because this keeps happening over and over again. Basic, dumb shit from either the DOJ or the Trump administration gets misfilled out on a form and it causes them to lose cases. It's incredible. It's happened again here. They didn't properly file. They didn't go after the right people even. (laughs) It's remarkable. And then additionally, on Bolton's side, it seems that Mr. Mustache walked out on the final review, no-showed on the final classification review from the Security Council that was going to approve it. And so they have a pretty tight case there because he walked out. So he walked out and just started printing the book early. And of course, the media all has a copy of it because the same company that owns the publisher of the book also owns CBS News. So of course they have a copy of it. Of course they rushed it. It's already out in the stores. It just hasn't been put on the shelf yet. The boxes are in the stores. They rushed this thing. And of course, there's no taking that back. But, (laughs) and this is, you know what they're going to do. What the Trump administration will do is they will prevent Bolton from getting his $2 million. They can still prevent him from profiting from it, which is just spiteful. It really is something. And of course, Shifty Adam says, this is John Bolton at his finest. If he supposedly knew things that were missed for the impeachment, maybe he could have showed up to testify. Bolton made it clear that if we subpoenaed him, that he would sue us and tie us up in court. 
now, this was uh, even after his deputies were willing to testify. They had the courage of their convictions. Uh, but Bolton's argument was essentially, no, that it would uh, potentially uh, impede on the, on the president, that it would violate potentially his constitutional duty. Apparently, those concerns gave way to a $2 million book offer. Uh, the fact that he wasn't willing to testify in the House and was willing to, to, to tie us up in court for a long time, but willing to tell the story uh, to a book, uh, to make money for a book, tells you a lot about uh, John Bolton's character. You know what else tells me a lot about your character, Shifty, is that you're going on national television belly aching about people holding you up in court. <laughs> That's been your entire political approach to dealing with the Trump administration. You kind of do see the irony there, don't you? Don't you, Adam? <laughs> you bastard. Now, the other thing that has been very upsetting to watch is the continued tribalistic debate around masks. The uh, the just just complete um lack of humbleness for people that expect you to wear a mask and the complete lack of willing to listen from the people who don't want to wear masks. Both sides completely complete assholes in this situation. Very, very frustrating. Nobody's willing to just talk science. Nobody's willing to maybe just take an extra step to show that they're helping out when people are freaked out, even if like, okay, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> I hate the mask. I'm a communicator. It makes me sound funny. I don't like the way it makes me sound. I don't like the way it makes me breathe. I don't like having the moisture on my mask, especially when it's 96 degrees here in Texas. I don't like any of it. But if I want to get some damn Terry Black's barbecue, I'm going to put the mask on because it sends a message to other people around me that we're kind of in, all in this together in a way. It's a it's a, it's a form of virtue signaling that is sort of like group safety. It's group safety. We recognize that we're taking care of each other. Does it do anything i'm not actually super convinced it's worth it but i think it is worth being in something together with people being in the, being in a shared experience together and recognizing that amongst each other oh you can really hear the the texas rains picking up in the background i think that'll pick up on the mic oh that's gonna be glorious that'll be the first break since i've been here in texas that is going to be glorious all of these stupid discussions around the mass bring me down the media throughout this entire corona situation has fixated on certain things and then they just like a dog don't let go first it was the ventilators well it started really before that but i think the one you'll probably remember the most the ventilators then the ppe and it was just ventilators 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 until all of a sudden one day we just stopped talking about the ventilators when we realized it was shredding people's lungs and we didn't need nearly as many ventilators as Como and others were skooman. What? What's that? Quoman? Andy Cuomo? Oh, uh, Andy Cuomo was saying that we didn't need, we, we need all these ventilators. And then one day just stop, just stop, just stop. Oh, it turned out maybe we didn't need so many ventilators. Here's, let's send them around to people. Let's, in fact, let's even send them internationally. We got so many ventilators. We don't talk about ventilators now. Now it's all about mass. Mass. Or these protests, you know, that's something else that has been the big focus is just how dangerous these protests are. You know, the media just goes on and on about how these protests are spreading the coronavirus and how dangerous it is, how dangerous it is to have these protests during a pandemic. What? They haven't been talking about how we could be spreading the virus during the protests. In fact, they've, what? They've even had medical, pro what? 
Uh, hold on. I'm just getting a note from an imaginary person here. To, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Show, yeah, right here. Oh, look at this. No, that hasn't been the case at all. It's been no issue with the protest. But now, now that it's time for a Trump rally, now, now we're really, really getting dangerous. In fact, we could be putting people at threat. We got to get mass and we got to stop all the rallies because putting people together in, in small spaces is going to, is, what? Oh, but that's what the protest, oh, shoot. Coronavirus infections are spreading rapidly across the South and West. According to Axios, new cases are up 11% nationwide over the past week. In California alone, infections set a new record, exceeding 4,000 in a single day. Meanwhile, Tulsa, Oklahoma, reported its highest number of new cases ahead of President Trump's campaign rally this weekend. Mm, There it is right there in the first few seconds of the clip. we got to get there. And you'll notice that's a trend these numbers, too, um, they're not, in my estimation, they're not as scary as you would expect after a grand reopening like we have seen in so many places. In fact, the numbers, in a lot of cases, they're being quoted to in percentages, which are a jump from, say, 12 to 22, or it's a jump from 75 to 78, or, I mean, these numbers... Um, are scarier when they're given to you in percentages. But when you go look them up, and I'll, I'll link uh, specifically to Oklahoma's numbers in the show notes, just so you can see what I'm talking about here. Um, yeah, they're up. They're up. But they're not up thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And then when you combine the improved rate of testing, and they're also lumping in hospital admissions, they're kind of bringing these two sets of data points together now as one data point and using that to emphasize that the numbers are going up. There is some trends upward, um, no doubt about it. Uh, I think that's what you would expect after everyone goes from staying at home to going out and mixing. The question is, is how severe was it? And if you're going to use use this as a warning mechanism, how clear is your data? And what are the exact data sources you're pulling from? And give us the actual hard numbers. If it's 55 today and it's 125 tomorrow, give us that number. Don't just give us the percentage. Our Laura Podesta has the very latest. President Trump says he's not concerned about the increasing number of coronavirus cases nationwide. The flames, they flare up in certain areas a little bit, but I think we'll put them out very quickly and we won't be closing the country again. We won't have to do that. The president is holding his first rally in months in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Saturday. The city's health director says between June 6th and 13th, there was a 116 percent increase in new coronavirus cases. Mayor G.T. Bynum admits he's anxious the rally could continue the spread. I think any rational person looking at uh, any large grouping of people, which is what we've been telling Tulsans for the last several months, that you need to be concerned about would have concerns about this weekend. Former Vice President Joe Biden took aim at the president during a speech in Pennsylvania. Donald Trump's failure to fight the coronavirus with the same energy and focus that he used to use to troll his enemies on Twitter. <laughs> it's cost us lives. President I, Trump I like the use of the troll term there. And of course, the uh, irony that uh, Joe Biden's criticizing anybody about any kind of energy expenditure. Meanwhile, Joe continues to hide out in his basement. So, of course, he's going to hit Trump as hard as he can. You know, they're calling the Trump rally already before it's happened. 
a super spreader event. This is an article I have linked in the show notes from USA Today, quote, President Donald Trump's decision to return to the campaign trail by holding a rally Saturday night in Tulsa, Oklahoma, his first in more than three months in the middle of a corona pandemic, has health experts fearful that gathering could turn into ground zero for a super spreader event, 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 event. And of course, we have to concern ourselves because people are getting together in small spaces. And we just got done telling you for a week solid how great that was. Look, there are no, there's no winners or losers in this lawsuit except for one thing, the virus one. <laughs> so, of course, this is a gentleman who took a case to the Oklahoma Supreme Court attempting to block the Trump rally to save lives. That's who won. If you sat down to design a delivery system for mass transmission of a virus during a pandemic, this is what you would come up with, this event. And um, so... I don't look at it as the lawsuit failed because I believe that we we raised the issues, we spotted the issues. Um, uh, what we do, what has failed us was not the lawsuit and our courageous plaintiffs who were the only ones in, to stand up. What has failed us is our local leadership. That's what's failed here. But really, the only winner is the virus. Uh, it's not a matter of whether people will get sick and die in Tulsa as a result of this event in my beloved city. It's a matter of how many. You see how you see what a just an obvious 180 this is from the way they've talked about the protests. And I harp on this because it is obvious to all of us. We see what they are doing. And these are the very fundamental actions that undermine the public's trust in the media. They're doing it to themselves again, just like they did in 2016. They're doing it again. This is out in front of everyone to see. The media could be interviewing health professionals and Trump administration campaign people on their steps to help reduce the spread, what they individually plan to do. There are so many ways they could be advising people to stay safe, but still stay politically engaged in a very important time. So important, so important that these protests are essential. Oh, listen to that rain. As my rage can you hear it? I hope you as the as my rage mounts, so does does the rainstorm. The Texas rains and my rage about this are linked. And I I hope I hope that it's not just me. I hope you see this too. I so desperately hope you see this because that is my only salvation through these crazy times is to know that somebody else out there sees what I am seeing and that we are not collectively just lost to the world's largest cult that is forming. What the media is trying to do is form a cult around the Democrats. And I don't just say that lightly. It's not just something I've just come to. It's something I have been grappling with for years now is what the hell is going on. We reject out those who, who provide disinformation according to the cult, and we only accept those who provide the information the cult wants to hear. And wow, Texas, when it rains, it's really serious. And it's not just it's not just this item. It's not just this political item. It's not just these things. It's, it seems to be, it seems to be accelerating. 
Um, I want to play this clip for you about Google shutting down ads on two different websites. They're not particularly large websites, but I think it plays into what I'm saying, where we're creating this cult of what's allowed and what's not allowed. And when somebody is providing information outside what the cult wants you to hear, they have to be removed. This afternoon, NBC News decided to use some of Google's power to shut down a couple of its competitors. Power is useful for that. An NBC employee called Adele Macomo Frazier forwarded Google executives a screed from a left-wing activist group in England denouncing two sites, Zero Hedge and The Federalist, as, quote, racist. Google immediately took the bait, of course. The company threatened to ban both news organizations from Google's ad platform, in other words, to cut off their revenue. Adele Macomo Frazier was thrilled by this. She immediately fired off a victory tweet, boasting about the censorship she had inspired. Adele Macomo Frazier seemed very satisfied with herself. She had done her part for the revolution today. Did you know this was coming? So you have an NBC activist. You have them working with Google, trying to get websites deplatformed for dangerous content on their website. So what does the Federalist and Zero Hedge have on their websites that's just so dangerous? Well, according to a Google statement, it was an unmoderated comment section. Special irony in that there. There's special irony in that. We're going to come back to that. But that was the reason that Google gave, that there was an unmoderated comment section on Zero Hedge. We will come back to that. But I also want to take note that Twitter is continuing to label some of the president's tweets as false information. And this week, Facebook also took action. Uh Breaking news, Facebook has just taken down some Trump campaign ads for, quote, violating our policy against organized hate crime, I think she was going to say there. Um, It was an upside down triangle in one of the pieces of art, I believe, if I recall. And so Facebook took action. Again, the irony here is is thick and it's not lost on your buddy, your good friend, Ted Cruz. Welcome back. Holding big tech accountable, Google cutting off ad revenue to right-leaning website Zero Hedge and also threatening the same for The Federalist. The company says the sites failed to meet Google's standards on offensive content. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley introducing legislation, meanwhile, that would remove immunity from big tech holding companies like Google, accountable for censoring different political viewpoints. Now, this is the irony that I was discussing. They're going to get to it a little bit more. It's a little tedious, but I want you to stick with this because this is very important. Google, Facebook, YouTube, big time, even though they're part of Google, I think it's very worth stressing YouTube, Twitter, Reddit. They all take advantage of a little old rule that says they're not responsible for user-generated content. Think about that for a moment, because that's what they make all of their money from. Without any users, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, no value. No value at all. Yet they're not responsible for what the users post. However, when it's Google making the decision... They're holding Zero Hedge responsible for things that people say in the comments, i.e. user-generated content. I've heard from the Department of Justice as well. Joining me right now is Texas Senator, Senate Foreign Relations and Senate Judiciary Committee member Ted Cruz. Senator, it's great to see you this morning. Thank you so much for being with me. Good morning, Marie. Always good to be with you. 
your reaction to what has taken place at Google. And let me just point out that last week there were reports that Google had eliminated the image of Churchill, Winston yep. Churchill. And then after there was a big, you know, hype about it, why would you eliminate Churchill's image? They said, oh, it was a mistake. Now you've got this pushback on the Federalist and Zero Hedge basically uh, threatening to rip off their, their advertising revenue, Senator. Now, that's exactly right, and, and it's worth noting the power that Google has amassed. It, it's unlike anything we've ever seen in, in history. There's never been a company that controls more information and, and critically more access to information. Over 90% of the searches done are done through Google, and their control of search, their control of ad revenue, has the ability to control what the American people hear, learn, understand, and in this instance, they really abuse that power. They went after the Federalist, which is a conservative media organization, and, and they threatened to demonetize them, to cut off all ad revenue. And, and, and in the Internet world, that, that can be the difference between life or death. Now, the Federalist wasn't at, was, at first wasn't even sure what the basis was. They were eventually told that Google had some problems with some, some of the comments on their website. Not what they'd written, the articles, the journalism they'd put up, but instead individual users had, had written some comments that were offensive. Uh, I sent a letter this week to the CEO of Google pointing out that this was blatant censorship and listing about a dozen left-wing sites, all of which have comments. Now, I don't know what the comments were that, that Google deemed offensive, but I guarantee you those left-wing sites have all sorts of profane and racist and objectionable comments that people have put there. Google is not imposing the standards on them. No, and most they're not part of the cult, Ted. You see, this is what I'm getting at. I think we have to consider a looser definition of the term and cult and consider what we are seeing is indoctrination at a massive scale things that just simply don't make sense they just don't seem congruent with the way reality works like chop formerly known as Chaz, the capital autonomous zone has changed names and now it's the occupy protest zone the Capitol Hill Occupy protest zone is chop now, and the media loves it. The media is part of this information cult for the most part, not all of it, and it loves chop. It thinks it's great, it's an expression, and nothing could go wrong in a lawless area of a major U.S. city that has been sectioned off. This clip I'm about to play from you is from MSNBC, and what is unfortunately impossible to prove, um, unless somebody out there could find it for me, but I, I, you'll have to take my word for it, the guy I'm about to play a clip was just recently shout down and ran out of a part of CHOP. <laughs> Because he wasn't he wasn't radical enough, and yet he still loves everything Chop's all about. Because you had a very peaceful uh, week here on these streets. So to give you an idea, this was a week ago today when the police, when the city chose to vacate this six-block area, including the East Precinct, their police station. It was then that you saw thousands and thousands of Seattle residents of all stripes descend, converge onto this area. This was sort of like the gathering place, the congregation 
inflection point for people to exert their energy, their anger, their frustrations to come together. You saw black, uh, brown, white folks here, young, old, on these streets engaging in conversations. This also became much more organized over the weekend. I think it's important to note, Stephanie, that this was it was not some hostile takeover. This was not a planned uh, venture among one organization. It's a lot of folks doing their part to put out a set of demands that they want to see. It is it is interesting the way the name change went down because it does perhaps suggest maybe things are a little more organized than we were led to initially believe. I've heard various things. I've heard that it was a fight internally and the two camps broke out. One camp wanted Chaz, another camp wanted Chop. But I've also heard that it was much more intentional. It, it, it was about changing the name and then watching to see who else started calling it that, to see who remained on script. It helped them come to tribal identity. Uh, it really helped form that tribal identity. It's a very important factor in the strength of the movement going forward. I think the other reason is maybe Chaz was losing some ground, but it has changed now because if it's not Chaz, the autonomous zone, who seems to be dependent on donations from moms and money from um, GoFundMes, and now CHOP is more of another Occupy. It's another Occupy Wall Street. In fact, in a sense, it's signaling to former people who were part of Occupy Wall Street, come join our movement. We are a new Occupy movement. Come join us. That thing you tried 10 years ago, we're doing it again, only there's more of us and we're out of work and it's another financial recession. This is a great time to come join CHOP. And fundamental elements of this are working because I have talked to numerous people here in Texas about it and they're all current on what's going on. People are aware of the situation and I think for the most part, granted I am in the Austin area, but for almost entirely for the most part, they think this is going to result in some kind of success for people. Boy, listen to that rain. I'm sorry I keep pointing it out, but... Oh, when you're from the Pacific Northwest and you have been in dry, 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 dry weather for two weeks. Oh, am I looking forward to getting out in that rain? <laughs> uh -huh. So the name CHOP, the change of the name, could, could signal that there is more organization than we have been led to believe. Maybe. Or it could just be the way it finally shook out uh, between arguments. I hope the former is not true. I, I, some organization would actually be good from a political negotiation standpoint. You can negotiate with leadership, but when it's a truly headless organization where no one's really in charge, how do you negotiate with that? How do you bring that to an end? How do you wrap up that, that zone and get people back to their homes and businesses? If there's no one to negotiate with, if there's no one to give clarity of demands, if it truly is an autonomous zone, there's no one to really negotiate with, and the bar, the goals, will be unique to each individual in the zone. It could go on for a long time because the local leadership in Washington State has no incentive to wrap this thing up. Seattle mayor says it's going to be a summer of love, possibly. How long do you think Seattle in those few blocks looks like this? I don't know. We could have the summer of love. Well, tell that to the police who was supposed to be in that precinct, though. But I understand your sentiment, Mayor. No real rush. You know, summer of love. Now, it's cute. It's fun. But don't forget, this is also going to be a zone where there's rape, theft, murder. There's a lot of people that are down there who are not very stable. 
And the story you're hearing is very, 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 very one-sided because it helps the cult. And if this doesn't get wrapped up, there'll be more. There will be more autonomous zones. Philly has its own autonomous zone. Doesn't get much attention because it's just full of homeless people. You know, there's no white suburban kids down there drawing attention to it. So we don't talk about it very much. But Philly has a zone. We just want permanent housing. That's our main, main goal. We all want permanent housing. We're not going to stop until we get permanent housing. So we have to stay here two, three years, five years. We'll stay here three, three to five years in these tents until we get permanent housing. That's our optional goal. We all want permanent housing. You know, they just want permanent housing, just free houses, no big deal. And um, they also, like all official autonomous zones, have gone through a couple of name changes, three to be exact. Okay, so there's been some discrepancy with the naming of the camp. You started out with uh, Camp Maroon, and then you pivoted to Lock A. No. Uh, what is the permanent name of the encampment here on 22nd and Parkway? Yeah, so the residents have agreed to rename the camp for a third time, as you, as you stated. Uh, James Talib Dean Camp, um, for our fallen brother, he was um, one of the brothers that set up the first tent here, and um, unfortunately he passed away on Monday. And to honor his memory, to honor the work that he's done in his life, he was instrumental in um, doing outreach um, at the airport, throughout the city for, of un unhoused brothers and sisters, um, through all, all throughout Kensington, um, supporting um, un um, brothers and sisters struggling with drug addiction. And so to honor his memory, we, we're going to name this camp James Talib Dean Camp so that his work can live on after he's gone. Uh, Chaz right, is well, a little... Uh, thank you. Chaz is a little catchier. So is Chop. But... Um, Will we see more of these? Why wouldn't you? There's lots of injustice. There's a horrible, horrible, horrible financial situation building for more and more of Americans. Why won't we see more of these? And in part of this is the reaction on the other side. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And... The reaction is what's happening to the cops. Now, I want to take a moment here and make it clear that uh, I personally recognize my bias in this area. I have had some bad run-ins with cops, mostly when I was younger and not even directly involving me, but situations I was around where I saw cops doing things that disturbed me, um, even as a young child. And so um, I've, I've always not been the biggest defender of the police and i admit that even now as an adult when i see a cop either in person at an event or when i'm going down the road and they pull out on the road i i experience an intense form of anxiety i do not feel safe i do not feel protected um i feel hunted by police especially in the Seattle area. It's better, I've noticed when I travel, it's better in other parts of the country. But in the Seattle area, they feel like predators. So I am no direct offender. Um, I have heard from several members of the police in our audience, and I've appreciated their perspectives, and it's helped me have a broader understanding of the situation. And so I do want to give some representation to that here. Uh, because what we're really saying, like in the, in the case of CHOP, is um, 
the the city is sending a signal that they don't support their police. Now, that's a tricky thing because you're asking the police to put their lines on the life, their life on the line, on the blue line, if you will. And this has happened before. It happened. It happened when Nixon came into office. Uh, it's happened before where we as a society begin to shift and we place the blame not on the system, but on the police officers and then they as a group feel attacked. Now they feel like they are being oppressed. And so they respond. And it is this tit for tat situation in which we have now entered where the blue flu is spreading faster than the big Rona. The Atlanta Police Department reported a, a higher than usual number of call outs. In other words, a walkout. And NYPD officers are being encouraged, apparently, to call in sick on the 4th of July. That would be known as the blue flu. And it is spreading to other cities as well. Police in Philadelphia, Louisville and Tallahassee are also considering walking out. Also very interesting about this situation is the official narrative is, nope, nobody's walking out. Oh, yeah, we've had a few, I don't know, maybe you could say higher than typical people calling in sick. But everything's fine. Don't worry. It's all we have extra cops. They've just been hiding and we're going to pull them in. There are reports of police walking out. Also, efforts to help morale with APD. Right. We saw all of that played out on social media last night. But despite multiple calls to APD today, asking them questions about where they stand as far as personnel, they still haven't clarified exactly what's going on within the department. We're asking, what's the public safety plan going forward? Do they have enough officers for tonight? And what's going on? Did the officers who didn't come in yesterday, have they quit? Again, they're not answering those questions as of this afternoon. But while we wait for those answers tonight, our reporting is showing some serious issues that happened last night. Yeah, the cops and the mayor, they can all say everything's fine, but the police scanners, they tell the real truth. Dead silence for long periods of time Wednesday night on Atlanta Police Radio. Any unit that is clear and copy of 69 at 135 University Avenue Southwest. Code 69. That's a call about a person with a gun on University Avenue. And still, no response on the police radio. But then this, around 12.57 a.m. Just advising us of pending. We have an honorable alarm at 1101 Avenue and the uh, intoxicated person at 880 Drury Street. It was the second time the operator had asked for an officer to respond. And finally, this. We are not answering 911 calls right now to the personnel issues. If you can reach out to other zones, I will to have them assist with our pending. Receive you there. Strap for units also. The county supports everything. Yeah. Social media. So that whole, we'll just reach out to other zones if our cops don't show up. Well, guess what? The cops from the other zones no showed too in support of their blue brothers. Funny how that works. So now you've so now you've got the cops versus the very people that they're supposed to be protecting. I am also concerned that in all of this, individual groups' identities will just become stronger. They will become more separate from the others. Whites, blacks, all the difference. You know, you know, what's funny is thinking about this. No one's really talking about immigrants from Mexico. No one's really talking about 
Asian Americans. No one's talking about Native Americans. But all of these individual identity groups, the lines between them only become bolder by this polarization and magnification that's happening right now in the media. And they heap praise on it, no matter what the cost is. No matter what the cost is. And I made a joke that it's all Trump's fault at the beginning of the show. But I truly do believe this is all starting to come back to Trump. They want to make his re-election as impossible as they can. And stoking racial lines is a great way to do that. Making you afraid of the coronavirus is a great way to do that. And I don't say this lightly because it brings me so much sadness to think that things like the coronavirus deaths and things that are as important as racial identities are just pawns for this corporatist media to play with so that way they can have their establishment return to the normalcy that it was before 2016. All of this. And meanwhile, real Americans are suffering. Welcome back to CBS This Morning. New unemployment numbers out this morning show a huge number of Americans are still asking for government help. The Labor Department says another one and a half million Americans filed for jobless benefits last week. More than 45 million claims have been submitted since the coronavirus crisis began three months ago. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger joins us. Jill, numbers down slightly from last week, but this is still a very big number, isn't it? It is. And we were expecting that claims would be down maybe uh, to 1.2 or 1.3 million, a, a still huge number. But this is just a slight improvement from the prior week. And, you know, although it is the 11th consecutive week where we are seeing claims go down, we are still so high, so many Americans suffering. Remember, back in February, we saw weekly claims in the 200,000 range. We're still at one and a half million. So they know the data. They know the situation. And yet they're still pushing for lockdowns when there are small increases that don't seem to be attached to any actual scientific reality. They're going after Trump's appearance. They're going after the way he walks down ramps. They're going after his mental capabilities. Amazingly enough, when Biden can't get a single sentence out, they're going after Trump, who can do multiple hour press conferences straight without any breaks. And yet talking about Biden is completely off limits. The mass have become totally politicized in a way that is dangerous to our health. This chop and autonomous zones and the protests, they are fantastic. There's no risks. In fact, health quote-unquote experts recommend that people go out and protest because systemic racism is more dangerous than the coronavirus, but a Trump rally, which would have a direct impact on the political future of, of millions in this country, that's too dangerous. Can't, can't go to that. Can't, ex, can't, ex, can't express one of your fundamental duties as a United States citizen. Stay home. Unless you're protesting and rioting. That's fine. <sighs> What, what's happening here? What is happening here? The, you can see how it leads one to think maybe it's a cult. Maybe something, something's happening, some sort of shift. Um, you can see how it's, you, you want to start throwing those kinds of terms around. And it's a way to try to make sense of all of this. As, as, the, election, as the election gets closer, there's a mantra that's 
always seems to have been true, even when it's far out and you don't want to believe it. But in an election year, it's always about the election. That's one of the um, old D.C. sayings in Washington. If if it's an election year and the issue is being brought up, it's ultimately about the election. That's that's how they see it. <laughs> I, maybe maybe it's true. You know, maybe it became an, it became a classic saying in D.C. for a reason. Uh, one more economy story. I think this is actually some really good news, and perhaps it was result of pressure of future funds. The Treasury will be disclosing who took those paycheck protection. Um, program loans for um, certain categories of small business. Now, the details, mm, well, that's actually where they kind of got you a little bit. We're, we're going to get ranges of who took money, not an exact picture. Hi, Tyler. We're just seeing a release that the federal agencies administering the so-called Paycheck Protection Program are now going to be releasing the information about the companies receiving loans above $150,000, which they say are three quarters of the loans dispersed so far uh, in this 10-week program so far. The data that will be released in this trove are the names and addresses of these companies, the type of business that they are, the number of jobs that the business supports and that the loan supported, and they will specifically uh, show the range of the size of the loan, not the exact amount, but it will be in a range. In tonight's statement, the Treasury Secretary praised bipartisan agreement on this disclosure after just last week telling Congress that the data about who's getting these loans is confidential. At $670 billion, this small business loan program itself is bigger than the financial rescue of the U.S. banks back in the last crisis. Mm. And because of that... Puts that in perspective, doesn't it? $670 billion. These numbers now, right? <laughs> they just don't seem real anymore. And, you know, when you start talking about kicking around another one trillion infrastructure or whatever, ah, who cares, right? Who cares? Just put it on the old Bob debt pile, right? What's the big deal? What's the worst that's going to happen? You know, I think your, uh, your uh, host here was way ahead of the trends by a few years. I mean, maybe I, maybe I just saw things coming before the rest of um, America, but RV sales are way up, way up. Even though the economy is in trouble, RV sales, way up. Well, the coronavirus pandemic put a wrench in travel plans for many Americans, but as summer begins and stay-at-home orders are now lifted, more and more people are looking for ways to get out and about. RT correspondent Natasha Sweet takes a look at how one business is booming and sending customers to the wide-open spaces. With restrictions being slowly lifted, many are looking for creative ways to get out and explore. And according to retailers, it's the main reason behind the surge in RV sales. It's clean and private without having to worry about passing around the coronavirus. Now, I I was joking about that um, at the beginning of the lockdowns when I was in my RV and I was out and about when Washington State started locking down. I was like, well, this is the perfect way to be in a lockdown because I never leave. <laughs> I just move around and still self-quarantine. And. Uh, yeah, people are, oh, yeah, sure, Chris, sure. Um, I've never actually believed the RV industry's reasons for their sales. And I don't know why that is, but the RV industry since 2014-ish, uh, 15-ish, um, really saw sales just explode, just explode. And they kept coming up with all these quaint reasons for it that never really seemed to make any sense. They tapered for a little bit and now they're back again. And so now they're just saying, Oh, it's Rona. Everybody wants to get out and vacation. So they're going to, this is the logic as if this is what people are thinking. 
well, the lockdown's going on, so my favorite hotel's closed, and I don't want to fly. So what I'll do is I'll go buy a $30,000 RV for the summer, and I'll go out on two trips. Really? That's what's selling RVs? You're telling me people, well, I can't take that that $2,000 vacation I was going to take with my family. So instead, I'll go take a $30,000 RV loan. I'll have to get $5,000 worth of accessories. Oh, by the way, my truck needs to be able to tow the RV. So better go upgrade my truck too. So there's another $60,000. Okay, now let's go to Yosemite. It's just, it, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what they, that's what they're claiming. So you could take an RV, go away with your family, go away, and stay out in uh, uh, in a campground or in the woods and be by yourself. Mike Knorr owns Knorr's RV Center and says business is booming. Now the RV industry is on fire because Uh-oh. everybody stayed at home 60 to 90 days. They're tired and they want to get away and they can't stay in a hotel room. With stay-at-home orders back in March causing many to cancel their vacation plans or avoid those fun weekend trips to the great outdoors, some are approaching travel with caution. And for Claire Iota, traveling in a clean space gives her a peace of mind. You can still travel, you can still go on vacation, but you know that everything is sanitized, it's yours. Terry McGinty says an RV would really help him to social distance while traveling unlike an airport. If I have it, I don't want to give it to anybody, and then, then I don't want anybody to give it to me. So the distance thing is really a smart idea. Thousand Trails Campgrounds, which runs more than 190 campgrounds and RV resorts in the U.S. and Canada, has seen a spike in camping reservations for the remainder of the year. You know, we've always looked at ourselves in the camping industry as the original social distancing. And for some, RV living is already a way of life. Sherry <laughs> yeah, Thousand Trails, the original social distancing, my arse. I mean, I'm a Thousand Trails member, pay for it every year. Um, but let's be clear. The most social interaction I had with a group of people this year so far was at a thousand trails about a month ago. <laughs> the reason why the the reason why everybody is reserving all of a sudden is because they couldn't. You disabled it. So when you turn it back on, guess what? <laughs> You're gonna get a spike in reservations. I don't know, I'm just not buying it. I think something else is at play. I've long felt that for some reason. The RV sales are tied to economic issues, but in a, in a reverse sort of way. Like, people are buying backup homes, get-out vehicles, zombie bunkers. I mean, that's what I did. I live in one, and now I'm here. I am broadcasting you from Austin, Texas, and um, hitting wild turkeys with my home, going down the road. <laughs> well, we got to her. I didn't make it this far. I, I, we got to the end. I think I'm going to go with it. It's not. It's just not easy to do this show this week. It's been very hard to start and throw it out. I just, I have struggled so much with this new cycle, but I feel like I'm getting my feet back under me. I am tracking it. I think what I will do is once we have some distance from this stuff, I'm going to do some deep dive retrospectives with lessons learned, some hindsight to try to just sort it all out. In the meantime, your support means more than ever right now while I'm on the road. Patreon.com slash unfilter. This is a listener funded show. There's no way it could happen any other way anymore. It's the reality this has to be listener-supported. The discussion's happening on filter.show slash discord. I'd love to hear from you. On filter.show slash discord, I will say it again. And thank you so much for tuning to this week's episode of The Unfilter Show. See you next week. Hey.